Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Don Ma in for Stefania. Here are today's top stories. Multiple rounds of voting for House Speaker on Capitol Hill today for the first time in a century. Leader Kevin McCarthy lost the first few times and momentum grows behind an unexpected nominee. Nearly two years have passed since the January 6th Capitol breach. Now Capitol Police say they have taken some big strides to ensure there's no repeat. We'll take a look. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis starts his second term, what he said in his inauguration speech and why some are criticizing it. Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, had to be resuscitated on the field last night and is still in critical condition, what the NFL says about rescheduling the game. China's leader Xi Jinping has lifted the country's strict COVID-19 policies, but as thousands of travelers from China board planes, a growing number of countries are making their own COVID restrictions. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy fell short of the votes needed to secure the gavel today. This is the first time in a century that there's been multiple rounds of voting for House Speaker. Those who opposed McCarthy rallied behind an unexpected nominee. And NTD's Melina Weiskup joins us now live on Capitol Hill. So Melina, this is history in the making. Walk us through how this vote played out today. Yeah, Don, good evening. Um, So, yeah, like you mentioned, this is the first time in a century that members have had to go through multiple rounds of voting. When electing a House Speaker, they went through three rounds and still no official Speaker is elected. House Republican Leader Kevin McCarthy never budged beyond 203 votes. Now, he needs 218 votes to actually take the Speaker's gavel, but he never garnered uh, that support. And, uh, you know, Instead of him gaining votes as those voting rounds went on, he actually lost a vote in that third round. Representative Byron Donalds threw his support behind Representative Jim Jordan instead of McCarthy. Um, So we will have to wait to see how this plays out. But it was interesting to see what those opposed were saying. For example, Representative Chip Roy on the floor saying this is less about who's elected to that speakership position and more about shining a spotlight on Congress and reviving that spirit of debate. Here's a look. So this is what the chamber looks like when we're actually debating and the bodies are in the chairs. How many times have we been down here giving speeches and there's not a soul in the chamber? Yet this is what it takes to get 435 people in the chamber and have an actual debate. To my friends here on this side of the aisle, I would just say this. The differences we may have, the differences between Joyce and Jordan or Biggs and Bacon, they pale in comparison to the differences between us and the left, which now unfortunately controls the other party. So we had better, we had better come together and fight for these key things. So yeah, Representative Jim Jordan was nominated in that second round. And that second round was very interesting because you have uh, Representative Jim Jordan nominating McCarthy, and then you have Representative Matt Gates coming up and nominating Jim Jordan. And it's important to note that, you know, even in that first round of voting, Six members already cast their ballot for Jim Jordan when he wasn't even officially nominated. And that's nearly as as many votes as uh, Representative Andy Biggs got in that first round. Andy Biggs took uh, 10 votes in that first round. And that was interesting because he's actually up for the speakership position. um, And Jim Jordan was right there with him, even though he wasn't officially nominated yet in that first round. Um, So there were, by the end, by the last round, there were around 20 Republicans who were still opposed to McCarthy. And of that group of 20 
Republicans, uh, they, you know, we heard from some of them earlier today, and they said that they proposed a deal to McCarthy that could have gotten him 218 votes. Um, one thing that they wanted, for example, was for McCarthy to commit to holding a vote on term limits, as well as some other measures. McCarthy rejected that deal. That's what that Republican group says, at least. And McCarthy says that the reason why he rejected it is because he doesn't want to empower certain members over others. And McCarthy says he's up for this challenge, uh, saying that, you know, he reflected on his record-breaking floor speech, and he said that he can also have a record for the longest speaker's vote, too. So uh, this is, you know, going to play out over the next couple of days. The House has adjourned for the night. They will return tomorrow at 12, while this, while this, uh, where this voting round will, where these voting rounds will continue to play out. Um, you know, it could take days. The longest it ever took was two months, and that was back in the 1850s. All right, thank you, Melina, and we'll keep you updated as the story develops. The U.S. Capitol Police have made over 100 significant improvements to security following the January 6th Capitol breach. However, they say there is still much to be done nearly two years after the incident. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger says the Capitol breach was one of the darkest days in the nation's history. He called it an event that forced security officials to question if such an incident could happen again. Manger says that clear improvements have been made through the hard work and dedication of more than 2,000 Capitol Police employees. Some of the improvements include new leaders from premier law enforcement agencies with an expertise in national security special events, intelligence operations, and physical security have been brought in. Planning for demonstrations and significant events now requires detailed incident action plans. New congressional legislation ensures that the Capitol Police Chief can unilaterally declare a state of emergency and call upon the National Guard. Significant equipment upgrades have been made to improve the department's readiness and protective capabilities. Specialized training has been expanded, civil disturbance unit capabilities have been increased, and a new intelligence director, Ravi Satkalmi, has been hired. Last year, the now-retired Capitol Police's Inspector General Michael Bolton found numerous deficiencies in the agency's preparedness in response to January 6th, including failing to share intelligence. According to the U.S. Government Accountability Office, 114 Capitol Police officers were injured on the 6th. Four people died from medical emergencies during the incident, and Ashley Babbitt, an Air Force veteran, was also shot and killed by a Capitol Police officer. Manger says an event like January 6th could be attempted again due to the polarized state of the nation. However, he says, quote, should the unthinkable happen, we will be ready. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Ron DeSantis officially starts his second term as the governor of Florida today. But some are criticizing him for addressing national issues during his inauguration speech. Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis was sworn into his second term in Tallahassee on Tuesday. Please repeat after me. I, Ron DeSantis. I, Ron DeSantis. During his inauguration speech, DeSantis criticized what he calls woke ideology. He said such ideas claim to benefit marginalized groups but ignore merit and achievement. We seek normalcy, not philosophical lunacy. We will not allow reality, facts, and truth to become optional. We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. He said such ideology can be seen in schools, for example. 
During his first term, DeSantis implemented the Parental Rights Act, which bans teaching about gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. During his Tuesday speech, the governor took some time to criticize federal decision-making. Federal government has gone on an inflationary spending binge that has left our nation weaker and our citizens poorer. It has enacted pandemic restrictions and mandates based more on ideology and politics than on sound science. And this has eroded freedom and stunted commerce. It has recklessly facilitated open borders. DeSantis is a likely frontrunner for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. Because DeSantis touched on many national issues on Tuesday, Democratic Florida House Leader Fentress Driscoll said he was not speaking to the people of our great state and the challenges we all face, but directed at GOP primary voters and billionaire donors. An endorsement by former President Trump helped DeSantis win his first gubernatorial bid in 2018. However, in December, USA Today polled voters on who they'd vote for if a Republican primary were to be held now. DeSantis led Trump by around 20 percentage points. A Wall Street Journal poll found similar results, with DeSantis leading by around 14 percentage points. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Arizona's new governor, Katie Hobbs, was sworn in on Monday along with a number of other new leaders in the state. The brief ceremony was held at the state capitol. Hobbs is the 24th governor of Arizona, succeeding Doug Ducey, a Republican who served two terms after being elected in 2014. Friend and federal judge Rupali Desai conducted the swearing-in. Desai was recently appointed and confirmed to the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Hobbs' mother, Linda, held the Bible while the new governor's husband and children looked on. Reporters were barred from attending, but a video posted on Twitter shows Hobbs trying not to giggle with her mother. Do solemnly swear, Do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution. Stop it, Hobbs! <laughs> Republican challenger Carrie Lake responded to the video, saying, Enjoy your banana republic. The event will be repeated on Thursday at a public ceremony on the Capitol Mall in Washington. Now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Don. Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, is still in critical condition after his heart reportedly stopped following a tackle he made on Monday Night Football. The 24-year-old made what appeared to be a routine play on Bengals wide receiver T. Higgins. Higgins collided with Hamlin, leading with his shoulder, which hit Hamlin in the chest. The second-year safety then wrapped him up around his shoulders and dragged him down. Hamlin then got up, only to collapse a few seconds later and lay motionless on the field. Medical personnel then administered CPR on him before he was taken off the field in an ambulance. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said in a letter to the league that was obtained by the Associated Press, quote, DeMar experienced cardiac arrest and was promptly resuscitated by on-site club physicians and independent medical personnel. Goodell said Hamlin was taken to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and is in the ICU. Hamlin's family released a statement saying, quote, We are deeply moved by the prayers, kind words, and donations from fans around the country. The game was eventually postponed, with the Bengals leading 7-3 in the first quarter. Now, the NFL announced today that the game will not be resumed this week, with both teams in play for the top seed, and with just one game left in the season, they'll need to make a decision soon. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA has a triple header planned, including a Celtics-Thunder game that features two of the top five scorers in the league, 
in Jason Tatum and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has 11 games on tap, featuring leading scorer Connor McDavid and the Edmonton Oilers hosting the Seattle Kraken. And that's it for your sports news. Back to you, Don. Thank you, Dave. Now to international news. Countries around the world are rolling out negative testing requirements for all arrivals from China, including the United States. This comes as China plays down the severity of its COVID-19 outbreak. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Despite the number of new cases, China announced last week that it will reopen its borders on January 8th. The announcement has prompted countries around the world to take action. In a press release on December 28, the CDC said passengers will need to present a negative COVID-19 result or proof of recovery before boarding a U.S.-bound flight from China. Several other countries have placed similar restrictions, including France, India and Italy. Morocco has banned all arrivals from China, regardless of their nationality, while Belgium said it will test wastewater for new COVID-19 variants in planes arriving from China. China's state media is continuing to play down the number of COVID-19 cases in the country. The country reported just three new deaths from COVID-19 on January 2nd, after reporting only one new death a day prior. Meanwhile, a report released by the UK-based health data firm Airfinity on December 29 estimated that around 9,000 people in China are probably dying each day from COVID-19. And over in Taiwan, more than 140 Chinese passengers arriving on Sunday tested positive for COVID-19, according to the Central Epidemic Command Center. The U.S. will roll out its testing requirements on January 5th. But former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said it's crazy to wait. The data is no good, but it sounds like we might have as many as a million, a million, John, a million Chinese people infected, 50 percent of their population traveling. The former Trump official told radio host John Castamatidis on Sunday morning that Chinese leader Xi Jinping will infect millions more. To send Chinese infected persons around the world knowingly infecting people all across the globe. Pompeo urged world leaders, including the U.S., to stop Xi from allowing Chinese citizens to potentially spread the virus. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And in 2023, political and military tensions will remain high in parts of the globe. Let's take a look at three geopolitical battlegrounds where major conflicts are taking place or are likely to take place. The war between Russia and Ukraine will enter its second year in 2023. The leaders of both countries addressed the war in their New Year's speeches. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on December 31st that he wishes for victory in 2023. I wish one thing to all of us now, victory, and this is the main thing. One wish for all Ukrainians. Let this year be the year of return, the return of our people, warriors, their families, captives to their homes, internally displaced persons to their Ukraine return of our lands. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin used his own New Year's address to rally the Russian people behind troops fighting in Ukraine. This has been a year of difficult, necessary decisions of crucial steps towards Russia's full sovereignty and the powerful consolidation of our society. It was a year that cleared up many things. It clearly separated courage and heroism from betrayal and cowardice. Putin also promised a Russian victory in the war. 
Now, turning our attention to Asia, there are two geopolitical battlegrounds in the region with rising tensions. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un called for developing new intercontinental ballistic missiles and a larger nuclear arsenal in the new year. That's according to North Korea's state TV. The current situation highlights the importance and necessity of mass production of tactical nuclear weapons and calls for an exponential increase of the country's nuclear arsenal. North Korea launched three short-range ballistic missiles on December 31st, and in the early hours of New Year's Day, the regime also fired another ballistic missile that fell into the Sea of Japan. The Japanese government filed a diplomatic protest. In the last year, North Korea's repeated missile launches have gravely raised tensions on the Korean Peninsula and regionally. North Korea's series of provocations threatens the peace and security of Japan, the region and the international community and must not be tolerated. Over the course of 2022, North Korea conducted an unprecedented number of missile tests. The president of South Korea said on Monday that his country is discussing possible nuclear exercises with the U.S. And remaining in Asia, the Taiwan Strait is also a geopolitical battleground brewing with tension. In her annual New Year's speech, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen called for communication and cooperation with the Chinese regime. From the COVID epidemic to the changes in global political and economic, two straits are experiencing the same challenges, and war is never an option to resolve problems. Only through communication and cooperation, with the goal of improving regional stability, will more people feel safe and happy. In his New Year's speech, Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping made only a brief reference to Taiwan and mainly addressed the COVID-19 pandemic. He said China overcame unprecedented difficulties and challenges during the pandemic in 2022. This is while the country deals with a major surge in virus cases. Tsai reacted to Xi's speech, saying Taiwan is willing to give humanitarian aid to China. Coming up, Sam Bankman-Fried pleads not guilty to all eight counts against him. This sets off a lengthy legal battle with Bankman-Fried's freedom on the line. And as more storms are expected in California, cities are preparing for more potential flooding and disruption. Find out how after this short break. The main suspect in the killing of four Idaho students has agreed to be extradited from Pennsylvania to face charges in Idaho. 28-year-old Brian Koberg reportedly showed little emotion during the hearing today in Pennsylvania. He faces four counts of first-degree murder and a burglary charge in Idaho. The court gave authorities 10 days to get him there, but it isn't clear when he'll be transported. The process is generally kept secret because of security concerns. The suspect is a criminology graduate student. He studies in Washington state but was at home in Pennsylvania for the holidays when he was arrested. Sam Bankman-Fried, commonly known as SBF, pleaded not guilty in court today. He's been charged with what likely could be the largest financial crime in the history of human, human civilization. If he is found guilty, he could potentially be sent to prison for the next 115 years. SBF was the former CEO of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, which is now bankrupt. 
People put billions of dollars of their own money into FTX and he allegedly stole many of those. Prosecutors charged him with eight criminal counts. These counts include wire fraud and conspiracy by misusing customer funds. SBF has pleaded not guilty to every single one of these counts. And earlier we spoke to former assistant U.S. attorney Kevin O'Brien. He says that pleading not guilty is actually a good strategy because it keeps all of his options open. It's totally conventional to plead not guilty. It would be a shock if anyone in his kind of situation would do otherwise. If he were to plead guilty now, he really wouldn't know the things that were in store for him in terms of sentencing. Um, like, like I said, he hasn't gotten any discovery. He doesn't know all the governments or any of the, or, or very, a very small uh, quantum, one can assume, of the evidence the government has. If SBF were to immediately plead guilty, it would be like confessing without fully knowing what exactly he's confessing to. And also, if SBF were to plead guilty today, the government could even immediately send him to prison. Even if he really did all the things he's accused of, it may still take a long time before he's actually in a prison cell. In the case of Enron, it took five years for the head of the corrupt company to have a scheduled sentencing. In the case of Elizabeth Holmes, who cheated patients with her fake blood testing company, it took around seven years. Former assistant U.S. attorney Kevin O'Brien says SBF's sentencing will also be a long ways off. This is largely due to the size and complexity of the case. The government has to produce all of the evidence, all of the, I'm sure, tens if not hundreds of thousands of emails that they've gathered. All that has to be produced to the defense, and the defense gets the opportunity to digest it and do follow-up and make motions based on all the information to try to get the charges dismissed or reduced. Finally, you have a trial date and you have to select a jury, assuming he uh, wants a jury trial. All this could take several years easily. Now, it's impossible to know how long it could take, but according to O'Brien's experience at the Department of Justice, he thinks it could be two to three years. And in that time, SBF will basically be free on bail as long as he keeps authorities informed on where he is. He's been out on $250 billion bail since late December. SBF's trial date is October 2nd, around nine months from today. Weather experts are expecting a major storm and heavy rains in California over the next couple of days. And a climate scientist says parts of the state will be at risk from flooding for even longer than that. NDD's David Lamb has the details. An upcoming major storm is looming over the middle of the week for California. San Francisco mayor and officials remind the public about storm preparedness. They said they already had 2,500 volunteers to clear out 3,800 storm drains to prepare. In fact, what we saw within a 24-hour period was a 5.5 inches of rain, which is one of the second largest amounts of rains that we have seen within a 24-hour period. In fact, it had not happened in San Francisco in this capacity since 1849. The National Weather Service says the upcoming storm for Wednesday will likely be one of the most impactful systems on a widespread scale.
It will also affect Southern California, as, at least as far south as Los Angeles County, and there could be some pretty heavy precipitation and strong winds um, that, that cause some problems down south as well. The main impacts are going to be in Northern California, though, because the storm will be stronger up there and the antecedent conditions are much wetter. Daniel Swain, a UCLA climate scientist, says Californians can expect a meteorological bomb cyclone coming Wednesday and Thursday. So this storm will be a pretty high impact storm. Rainfall rates are going to be high for a few hours around the time of cold frontal passage. Winds will be quite strong, um, even at lower elevations. And so given how saturated the soils are, this is likely to produce pretty widespread, minor to moderate flooding, especially urban and creek flooding. But what does this mean for California's drought? Swain says it can provide temporary drought relief. In the short term, I think we will have largely alleviated the, the, the short-term drought in Northern California. So from a, you know, a surface soil moisture perspective, from a stream flow perspective, everything is going to look pretty good. For the upcoming storm, San Francisco city officials recommend having at least a three-day survival kit, which should include essentials such as water, a first aid kit, flashlights, non-perishable food, and warm clothing. They also remind people to check on friends and family who may need assistance during the storm, especially elderly or those with disabilities. To keep drains from getting clogged, remove debris and sweep up any leaves from sidewalks and storm drains. If the power goes out, unplug and turn off appliances. Leave one light on to signal when power is restored. The city also said that emergencies are opportunities to come together and support those around you, and that sharing a meal, book, or phone charger are even more meaningful in the days after an emergency than before. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Don Ma. Good night.